Ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. Welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies audio blog. I'm your reader, Sarah Head. Each episode of the audio blog coincides with the blog post on the Archaeological Fantasies website, where notes and resources will be listed. We hope you enjoy these short mini-episodes and check the blog out for more information. Now, get ready to think critically. The history of pseudoarchaeology, from engagement to isolation. Things changed drastically as archaeology developed and professionalized. During the professional time, or the romantic era of archaeology, as Jeb Card and Dave Anderson call it, archaeology was more of a jumbled collection of competing methodologies, antiquarians out looking for epic adventures, chasing down mythic locations, and making extraordinary claims to establish racial dominance and promote nationalist agendas. However, as the field of archaeology matured, it began to challenge these behaviors, choosing scientific procedure over frivolity, demanding evidence to support wild claims, and, in general, growing up. For example, alternative theorists love to point out a couple early hoaxes that archaeologists had to deal with. The most famous of these would be the Piltdown Man hoax. Ever so briefly, the Piltdown Man was an early 1900s hoax where the lower jaw of an ape was altered to look like it belonged with the cranial part of a human skull. It was discovered in 1912 in Sussex, England, and was lauded as the missing link. Though the hoax wasn't 100% debunked until 1949, it did have its early detractors. Many thought it was just a little too convenient that Piltdown Man was discovered where it was. And as the time went by and more actual hominids were found around the world that predated Piltdown's supposed age, more suspicions were thrown at it. 1949 was the beginning of the end for Piltdown Man, as a series of tests revealed that the bones that made up the skull were not the right age, or even from the same species. Piltdown Man fits because of the desperate need of the British government to have not only an early hominid discovered on their soil, but for it to be the missing link. British archaeologists at the time were willing to overlook clues that this was probably a hoax. Yet 40 years later, after a lot of questions from inside the field, the Piltdown Man was exposed. The reason this case is so well known is because it played out in the public eye, mainly by the circumstances of the time. Newspapers carried stories and images of the Piltdown Man. The public loved it and talked about it. It was even presented by the researchers to the public. Because of this, other researchers were able to know of and examine the hoax, and call it into question long enough to finally get it disproven. Now when we talk about the Piltdown Man, we're talking about the hoax, and not the supposed missing link. The development of institutional professional archaeology. Honestly, this is where things start to decline as far as the interactions between archaeology and pseudoarchaeology are concerned. Leading up to the 60s, archaeologists were all over the place publicly. During the 1800s, they were traveling around, speaking, and presenting findings. Granted, this was a necessity of the time, but the side effect was a great deal of public engagement. As time moved on, archaeologists began to appear on the radio and then TV, embracing the new media as ways to communicate with the public. They wrote popular books about archaeology and again spoke publicly on the topic. This all seemed to work out best over in the UK. Sir Leonard Woolley was all over the radio. Sir Mortimer Wheeler and Glenn Daniel were named TV Personalities of the Year in 1954. The UK show Animal, Vegetable, Mineral was a success, where the US version, What in the World, was not. Overall, it seemed like everything was going good. Then the new archaeology moment began in archaeology, symbolizing a shift in archaeological theory and practice. This time was important. It was a time when archaeology began to look critically at itself and evaluate itself. It started important theory groups like gender and queer theory, started a realization of the colonial practices of archaeology, and called out the racism of the field. 
We're not going to delve deeply into any of this here, but it's important to understand what was happening as the archaeological field solidified and professionalized. Unfortunately, it also isolated itself, pulling away from the public eye and behind academic walls. Card and Anderson point out that during this time where archaeology was maturing and professionalizing, the public saw very little of it. Instead, what they did see was TV, books, and magazines pushing sensational ideas like ancient astronauts, ley lines, hidden symbols, and lost civilizations. Few professional rebuttals were issued, and even those didn't appear to make it to the general public. Chariots of the Gods by Eric Von Daniken was published in 1968. It inspired a TV series, In Search of Ancient Astronauts, airing in 1973. These were just a few of the most popular, clearly pseudo-archaeological media of the time. The result of all this uncriticized attention on fringe ideas resulted in actual archaeologists becoming caricatures and stereotypes, and the most recognized archaeologists in the U.S. during the 70s and 80s being Eric Von Daniken and Indiana Jones. The only book to come out at this time that I can find is Robert Watrop's book Lost Tribes and Sunken Continents in 1962. Even this, though, was a response to a 1947 book by Harold Gladwin, who was either being completely serious with his offensive racist diffusionist theories, or was just trying to be funny. Julian Stewart said about Gladwin's book, Anthropologists who are familiar with Gladwin and with Gladwin's solid contributions to Southwestern archaeology during the past two decades will recognize this book as the release of partially suppressed theories with which he has long wanted to taunt the profession. They will understand that his manhandling of facts, his whimsical methodology, and his beating of dead horses are designed to get their blood pressures up. They will recommend that their friends should read this book for sheer entertainment, but that they should not believe a word of it. Either way, he did have noted eugenicist E.A. Houghton write the foreword, so... As archaeology withdrew from the public eye and the public discussion of archaeology, they lost control of their image and symbols. Jeb Card points out in his book Spooky Archaeology that the void created by archaeologists was gladly filled by pseudo-archaeologists putting on the trappings of archaeology and creating an image that allowed them to co-op archaeological authority. Quote, anyone willing to wear the old symbols of pre-professional archaeology can claim the archaeological legacy and its mythic social currency, even if their ideas or methods have no significant tie to actual archaeology practices past or present. Card 2018. It took over 30 years before the next book written by a professional archaeologist challenging pseudo-archaeology would be published. By then, pseudo-archaeology had its hooks in the minds and imaginations of the public. Von Daniken and his cohort had not only lit a match, but the flames had caught, inspiring movies like Star Wars New Hope in 1977 and Raiders of the Lost Ark in 1981, comic books like Jack Kirby's Eternals in 1976, games like Dungeons and Dragons 1974, hundreds of popular fiction stories, and even more docu-mysteries. Even newspaper comics routinely poked at these ideas. The Far Side by Gary Larson started in 1980 and routinely joked about archaeology, cavemen, and aliens. So to recap where we are just now. 1. During the Romantic era of archaeology, it was pretty chaotic, but as the field professionalized, archaeologists began to question extraordinary claims and test them using developing methodology. 2. As archaeology further developed and focused on much-needed self-reflection and theory development, it isolated itself and withdrew from public discussions. 3. As archaeology left the conversation, pseudo-archaeology jumped in with both feet. 4. When archaeology came out of its self-imposed exile, it realized the damage done by its non-participation. But at this point, the damage was done. 5. Archaeology is trying desperately to catch up with pseudo-archaeological claims and relearn how to engage the general public. Basically, by the time professional archaeology decided to wake up, the damage was already done. 
pseudo-archaeology was part of the mainstream and nearly every part of entertainment. When archaeologists began to re-engage pseudo-archaeology, they were confused at the public's rejection of the world of facts and theory, and even argued amongst themselves about how best to embrace this new wave of fringe beliefs. Still, it was clear something had to be done. The question was what and how. We hope you enjoyed the Archaeological Fantasies audio blog. Be sure to like and share us with all of your friends, enemies, and acquaintances. Be sure to check out the blog at archiefantasies.com for more information and to comment on the episode. Or you can send us an email at archiefantasies at gmail.com. If you'd like to donate to the blog, you can find us on Patreon and Ko-fi. This episode was edited by Sarah Head and music was provided by Archaeosuit Productions. Thanks for listening! We don't do dinosaurs! See? Are you happy? Do you get it now? Do you get it? Honestly.